0: Welcome to the Apollo Social Science Podcast, where we speak to people working in the borderlands between social science and healthcare. Each episode we hear from someone working in this space to learn about three big ideas that have influenced their thinking and development. Our aim with the podcast is to show different lenses of understanding health and healthcare and to explore how ideas and theories can lead to changes in someone's research journey. So today on the episode I'm joined by Sophie Spitters, who is a research associate in the Apollo Social Science Group at Queen Mary University of London. Sophie is a friend, a colleague and someone who's helped get this podcast off the ground and so I'm really glad to be speaking to her today. So Sophie we're going to hear about your three big ideas in a bit but just before we started recording you said something really intriguing which was that your research trajectory or your your kind of educational trajectory looked more like someone who was in the making to become an engineer rather than a social scientist. So can you tell us a bit about your journey so far and how it's taken some twists and turns to bring you to where you are now?
1: Yes, definitely. Um, I think that actually started in school where I always really enjoyed like mathematics and physics and uh, chemistry a little bit. (laughs) And so when I went to university, I actually started studying physics and I really enjoyed it, but... It wasn't really what I had in mind. I think part of it was also um, uh, like chilly climate being with lots of guys who just study in a different way. At least that's what I've experienced. Like I like collaborating with people and this was more like you do the task. Um, But also we had like one project in the beginning where we were looking at what you would be doing if you become a physicist and you would be in the lab, like working with lasers and electrons and suddenly I realized, like, I'm not, sure. I'm not <laughs> sure if that's, like, why I see myself in the future. Um, and luckily, I had a really good study advisor um, who had done psychology herself. And she actually said, like, it's not that big of a transition from physics to psychology, because that just means that you're interested in how the world works, like how the physical world works and the natural world and how humans work. So I thought, okay, let's do it. But then even in psychology, when I did my master's, that was um, human factors and engineering psychology. Right. That was about looking how people interact with technology, how people work in the operating theater, in services, in organizations, and um, how you design services, organizations, technologies for humans. So it was, again, still focused on this way of like, yes, now we have this knowledge about people, but how are we going to make things and design things and develop things? Um, but, yeah, even then afterwards in uh, in my PhD, I started, um, I studied how people improve things. Uh, and then, so not doing the improve myself, <laughs> but looking how people do it, uh, but like, by themselves. And yeah that was how I kind of made the transition to social science mm. and now I explore more like how the social world works how um, at the moment how GP practices operate. And yeah <laughs>
0: that's great thank you yeah that's really interesting and I think yeah it's, it's just interesting what what questions are kind of most motivating at different ages and different um, I don't know, do you you think you changed as a person between, let's say, um, that initial choice to to, um, take physics at university through to when you find yourself moving towards trying to understand social worlds in your PhD? Like, was that a a journey of you changing as a person as well or was it mostly just around what what you were studying?
1: Yeah, I think actually that as a person I probably stayed the same that like underlying these kind of more technical fields was this desire to understand how things work and like it's exactly what my study advisor said how the physical world works or how the social world works but I do think that like these different types of studies really transform me as a person Mm. and I do feel that now I'm still not great with words like I think more in abstract ways and in diagrams and those kind of things but like learning Words and learning concepts through social science, it has really given me such a better understanding of myself and mm. the world, and I feel like I've, I feel like I've become a better person. Wow! Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. yeah, yeah. So I've changed in some ways and yes. not in others.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you, and I'm really excited to hear about your um, big three ideas, and I think we will hear more about your. Sort of journey that you've been on um, as we explore those. And the, the first um, idea that you brought today is a paper from 1950 by, and we tried to work out how to say his name beforehand, let's see if we get it right, L- Ludwig von Bertalanffy. Um, I'm sure that was poor, but there we go. Ludwig von Bertalanffy called an outline of general system theory. So to start with, do you mind just explaining a little bit about what general system theory is? And then after that, to say a bit about um, how it's influenced your research.
1: Yeah, I think actually it aligns very well with the introduction because systems theory is actually one way to um, describe what the world is like. And uh, von Bertalanffy, <laughs> I'm also struggling with this. He was actually a, a biologist, but systems theory like works in uh, has been adopted in like very different fields. Um, engineering, healthcare, biology and it is a way of describing and kind of unpacking um, the way things in the world work uh, by breaking it down into different components and um, then more importantly understanding how these components work together and interact with each other and work together as a whole. So one of the things um, most important about this theory is that it is important to first break a system down into its component, but you cannot understand it through its components alone. Like they work as a whole and because they work as a whole and they can have interactions um, that like reinforce uh, influences from outside or negate them, you can have very unexpected um, outcomes at the level of a system, and you can have like emergent effects in that kind of way. And um, this person described it very well in terms of like um, a human body. Mm-hmm. Like, if you break a body down into its organs, um, you don't have the property of life. That's like an emergent property that you have as a body. And it's the same for the individual components. So, for example, if you take a hand off the body, it cannot write anymore. Um, So that's like um, to think about systems. Mm -hmm. And he was also saying that systems are stratified. And that was how um, von Bertalanffy specifically interacted, um, brought all the different sciences together. Mm -hmm. So he was saying in chemistry, we look at the level of like... um, Um, atoms Um, but then in biology you look at um, the level of like living beings which is again like an emergent um, level so to say and then in sociology we look at different humans working together Mm -hmm. and like building societies and organizations Mm -hmm. and so it's it's another like way that like systems theory can like Help frame the way that we see the world and study the world.
0: And so, what were you doing at the time that you first came across systems theory? Uh,
1: so, I think it has like it has kind of been implicit in a lot of what I've been doing. So, like even in my um, in my masters, I um, did a module on resilience engineering, and there it was about um, unpacking systems to investigate like how accidents happen. And um, how do we create, it was basically, like, how fascinating is it that, like, in healthcare, in aviation, things usually go right? Um, How do we put things together to make sure that it, like, kind of happens okay normally, even though things happen? And then sometimes, obviously, things break down. So um, we didn't unpack system theory specifically, but we we were already applying it. Right. So we were applying some methods that were based on, like, system theory. And then later in my PhD, um, I was brought into a more medical and healthcare setting um, where a lot of people um, adhere to, like, evidence-based medicine and kind of that type of thinking and when I was trying to explore how people do improvement, I realized it just didn't really make sense. Um, and that was when I kind of explored system theory again to make sense of this um, uh, of what I was what I was looking at. So, um, shall I say a little yeah, bit? About yeah, yeah. It would be great to
0: like hear. I don't know. It would be, be great to hear about your PhD and, and specifically what systems theory allowed you to see in the question that you were you were looking at.
1: Yeah so it was in my PhD I studied how um, there was one team who had successfully implemented an integrated care intervention for uh, to improve the health of children with allergies and um, they had come together in this um, center who were supporting um, like a quality improvement collaborative so they were uh, teaching and training this healthcare team in like quality improvement methods and organizing peer learning events with other teams and uh, through that process, they um, kind of came up with this intervention and implemented this intervention where uh, expert allergists like from the hospital would go into GP practices and then they developed a nurse who were doing some like specialist clinics and it was all like, it was great. (laughs) And then they thought, okay, what's next? Like, this should be rolled out. We have this like package, like this evidence-based package that we developed and other people need to adopt this package. And I was kind of studying the the rollout of this intervention to other settings. And what I've noticed was I understood the idea of of the evidence-based package. And that's also what randomized controlled trials are based on. Like, this is what we've studied. We haven't studied something else. Mm -hmm. So this is what you need to do and not something else. Um, But in real life, it doesn't really work like that. So in many of the settings, this specific package it didn't really make sense. Either they didn't have these this like super specialized hospital who had all the skills. Sometimes they didn't have like a trained nurse available. Um, they had maybe other opportunities, or they had already implemented parts of it, but not others. So it didn't really uh, this package. It didn't make sense because it was operating at its own system, so mm, to say. Mm. But it was also entering something that was already a system, a surface, a region um, where, yeah, it made more sense or less sense. Um, But then on the other hand, like all of these areas, they were already performing and they were making changes and making improvements and achieving similar results, similar improvements, similar outcomes in very different ways. Um, and this is something that I started to unpack with system theory, mm. like how comes that there are kind of different routes to Rome, so mm-hmm, to say. Mm-hmm, yeah. and that is one of the one of the properties that also is described by von Bertalanffy. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's it called like finality towards the goal, and um, that means that like sometimes a specific structure. Uh, can achieve like a specific outcome but it can also be that um, there are different types of structures that can still achieve the same outcome I'm not <laughs> describing it very well but like the last one is called equifinality and it's something that was just it just very resonated so for me that this one theory could describe many different things of what I was seeing mm. um, yeah was why I thought like okay I need to understand this a little bit better and then you can also better understand like what the role of an intervention is mm. that it's not always and not only an evidence-based package but that if you put it in the real world it can be a component it works within the system it will have an impact in one way in one system and it will impact a different system in a different way mm. Um so yeah that was very helpful for me.
0: Can you tell us about that last part of it? The, it was an intriguing word. Was it equifinality or, or, um, <laughs> yeah. or, or what's, what's that part?
1: Yeah, equifinality is like because this came from biology um, and that is where um, you reach like a, a certain final state independent of like how you get there. So they gave the example of in a species, different species for example they usually reach um, a certain size independent of what size you were born with, independent if you had, like, uh, difficult circumstances or periods without much food, in the end, you still, generally speaking, reach the size of your species. Um, and, yeah, in the same way, it's, like, systems, they reach a certain state, even though there are, like, adverse circumstances yeah. or positive circumstances. Like, obvious, often they, they stay within that kind of prescribed and go. It's not prescribed, but it seems prescribed. Yes. Yes. Um so that is kind of like one way that there's you can have different experiences and go different ways, but in the end somehow you still reach that kind of pre like predicted state yes. almost.
0: What did the um the people who who were kind of working on the original intervention that was where, where there was all this hope that it would then flourish in all these kind of other other areas, what did they make of, of the sort of um, observations you were making uh, and, and the systems theory kind of uh, approach to why perhaps it was disappointing compared to what was hoped for?
1: Um, I think what I was really impressed actually with that team is that they were really learning over time as well. And I don't think I was using these kind of systems theory concepts when I was talking to them. I was more... Um, describing the, the choices that people were making and um, kind of explaining that what they were doing was rational. Um, and I think for the teams, they were very um, yeah, accommodating to that mm. because they were also involved with some of the rollout. So initially, they would say, like, this is what we've done, please do that. But then when people describe, but these are my choices... Um It is more about like the reasoning and then you rely more on like mechanistic thinking, so to mm-hmm. say, which is like in the evidence based hierarchy. That's like not as good as the randomized controlled trial okay. package. But in real life, they also, um yeah, then you become humans. And I think actually that medical practice um is more about that. It's more about experimenting, trying different things, see how it works. So they do have that type of um knowing and doing already in them so i think yeah they did very well with like accommodating and saying like okay as long as we're trying to achieve the same goal mm. it's okay
0: yeah yeah that's great is there anything else you want to say about systems theory before we move on to your second idea
1: uh, no i think <laughs> i think I've, uh, we talked about it quite a lot that's
0: great no that's great that's really helpful actually i, I I've heard the term before, but this is the first time I think I'm I'm seeing. Okay, you know that, that that's that's where it sits. Thank you.
1: Makes um, sense.
0: So your second idea is going to take us into some philosophy, um, and it's a book by Alan Norrie called "Dialectic and Difference: Dialectical Critical Realism and the Grounds of Justice." And I'm really glad that you brought this idea because I read something last year that was um, sort of built upon. Roy Baskar's concept of dialectical um, critical realism but I'm really not sure I understood it very well um, and so yeah I'd be really grateful before we move on to how this um, influenced your own research um, could you just say a little bit about what um, what this theory is?
1: Yeah so um, Alan Norrie actually he describes in this book the world the work of Roy Baskar. Um but I think I'm not sure if he's actually like gotten an award for this, but like Roy Buscar was notorious for having very complicated writing. So <laughs> I'm happy that like there have been other people, um, philosophers mostly, who have made a made a really big effort to make it accessible to like non-philosophers. Um and Alan Norrie is one of the people who's done that very nicely. And Dialectical critical realism or critical realism in general—it's a way um, of understanding the world. So it brings together um, ideas of epistemology, like what can we know about ontology, like what is um, what is real, Um, and it kind of it describes itself as a as a meta theory. So it describes very basic concepts of what we can find in the world and how we understand the world. Which impacts um, what you can know, how you can study, and um, for me it was very helpful because it was very comprehensive and it aligns actually
0: very well with um, with systems theory. Mm. Um, I'm not sure if that's like. Could you say a, a bit more about? Um, sp- what, what, yeah, what what exactly is? Critical realism in comparison to let's to say some ones. some of its kind of neighbours or, 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 or cousins.
1: Yeah, so I think the key part is in the world in the world realism. So it does believe that there is a a real world that we are in as humans and that we can get to know. Um, a difference with, like, for example, positivism um, is that critical realism realizes that We cannot always, we cannot fully know it. So, truth is not something that you can identify, but something that you can try to reach. And they use um, judgmental rationality to kind of um, compare different ideas and different hypotheses and say, like, we have these hypotheses, this one um, we have this type of evidence for, this one we have this type of evidence for. Um, and based on our rational thinking, we think hypothesis A is more likely. Um, but because we can never know the truth, they are more open, not only to physical explanations, but also to social explanations, because that, the way that you feel or the way that you perceive things or your ideas, that also gives you knowledge and understanding of what the world is like. Um, so it's kind of like very open to different epistemological epistemological ideas and different stances yes. um
0: but it would be so so it, on the one yeah, but it also is is um if i'm understanding it right it's not the same as constructivism where you where you say actually we don't have access to um to reality at all All we have access to is how people um understand and con- construct reality would that be a, would that be a sort of fair Um, I don't know, kind of difference to to draw it between as well.
1: Exactly, exactly. Because they do think that with this judgmental rationality, we can kind of say these things are probably more like the real world than others. And in constructionism, they say, like, we are not connected. So, yes, uh, we do not know. Okay. Um, And also, I think what actually has drawn me to critical realism is that they also really describe... um, like ontology, so what things are real. So for example, like subjective beliefs are part of the real world in their ontology, but also morality. So what is good and what is right, which is often, uh, especially in the physical sciences, like that's not only ignored, but mm. like ignored on purpose because that's not part of science. That's not part okay. of the world, even though if you talk to those um, scientists in real life, obviously they... They talk about morality, but in their science, it's not part of what science should look at. Um, And in critical realism, they explicitly say like morality is part of the world. So if you want, if you find the methods, you can study it. And for my PhD, that was really important because I study healthcare improvement, And that is implicitly moral because if you improve things, you make it better rather than worse. That's the idea. And in a lot of, like, measurements, um, people who are doing measurements, they just say, like, we've increased these measures, so it's better, it's improved. But, like, is it really? And um, if you make these kind of statements, I think you should be explicit about it, that it's a a moral thing and how you operationalized it and why and whose voices are heard, whose voices are not, like... So that's what I really like about okay. about critical realism that there's very explicit about all these things.
0: So, so it, it allowed you to, um, yeah, not kind of dodge that question of of morality, but also, yeah, I, I guess to not have to have it in a different category to the other things you are studying, but just have it a part of the whole thing of saying you know these, are, this is this is being looked at alongside things that or have numbers attached to them.
1: Yeah, and I actually specifically used one of the, I don't know, frameworks. I'm, I don't, I'm not sure if I can call it the framework, um, but it was called MELD, um, developed by Roy Bhaskar, and that's also about change. And um, that's kind of where the dialectics and the systems theory and the morality all comes together. And that's kind of like the framework that I used to guide my research. So, um, it was about, yeah, about understanding change, actually. But as a, as, a, as a dialectical framework, I'm not sure if I should get into dialectics Yeah, well. please, because yeah. I, I was
0: going to say, uh, like, I think I get the second two words now, but, yeah. but t- tell me a bit more about what the dialectic <laughs> bit means.
1: Yeah, so, um, dialectic is a way to understand um, contradictions, and you have... Um, You have kind of, I don't know, like mathematical contradictions. So for example, um, if B is the color yellow and there's only one yellow letter, then C cannot be yellow, you know, like that is uh, that is a contradiction, but you can understand it mathematically. But there are also many contradictions that aren't like that. It's for example, like, um, I am a healthy human being, I am a smoker. Like, those things seem to be a contradiction, but they can also exist together. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's about those kind of contradictions and how can you integrate an understanding about them. And you had, before you had, like, um, Hegel, who does, like, a a very famous (laughs) way of, like, understanding dialectics and dialectical thinking. What he usually does is he um, brings... Contradictory statements together by going above. Um, so he would say, um, let's think of something. So if you would say, like, I am working hard, um, then normally we would think you would achieve good outcomes. When that's not the case, he would say, like, oh, that's because you're not um, working effectively. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't really help me understand uh, me working very hard. Like, okay, thanks for telling me. So, what do I now need to do? It doesn't really help me to like resolve this contradiction mm-hmm. in real life. Yeah, um, and that is what Roy Bhaskar was trying to do with his way of dialectical thinking by not only describing and resolving this contradiction intellectually, but understanding and resolving it the way it exists in the world Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so he would then say instead of saying like oh you're not being effective you would say like okay what are the things that you're doing what are the things you are missing what do you need to do to achieve a good outcome um and then you can start working on that
0: so this is starting to sound a bit more like the what you were doing in your phd of saying well why isn't this very evidence-based intervention or why is it doing something quite unexpected when it's transplanted to this this environment and so that i can start to see how the two sort of fit fit together quite well
1: yeah exactly exactly and also how it links to system theory because rather than like um coming up with new in- interesting concepts you you start breaking it down into mechanisms and figuring out like if we have these mechanisms in place why do we still not get the outcome are the interactions missing what is the pattern um so that really helped me and meld uh, it's four stages. I don't know like how we came up with the names of these stages because it's the first <laughs> moment, the second edge, the third level, and the fourth dimension. Okay. Um but in the first moment <laughs> that is where you kind of take stock of what you already know. Um and in my in my PhD that was what do we know about quality, what do we know about children's allergy care. Um, what theories do we have? What components do we have? And then um, at the second edge, you see how things change and you learn like from how things develop and how things um, yeah, develop in the real world. And then you can start seeing like, where are the theories missing? Where are they lacking? Where are they not really corresponding with what happens? Like Sometimes you have contradictory theories, which is what I actually found a lot mm. in um my work because there were some theories from evidence based medicine and done, and then some like theories and methods that came from the automotive industry, mm-hmm. so it's a very different way of thinking, and they sometimes didn't have like the same type of ideas um so in the second edge, you see you look at a, at real life and you see how the different theories like match up with real life and then in the third level you make your kind of new theory where you um, with your new understanding you have your components and you understand you try to understand how they are related to one another. it's really about like the relationships really and then the fourth dimension is about changing it so with this new understanding um, how can you strategize and think like what would be the best way to intervene um, with the idea of creating like a, a better world in the way of like morality. So I think what Alan Norrie actually does in his book, what I really enjoy is that he also specifically talks about um, working towards freedom and he mm. comes up with like seven levels of freedom where the last one is, oh, I forgot the word, but like um, a society where um, my freedom is dependent on your freedom. Mm. Mm. So where everyone is
0: free. Wow. But it
1: takes seven levels to get yeah because
0: <laughs> yeah, because it's interesting because I guess a lot of that meld framework feels not dissimilar to I guess a lot of the research process of you know you you do a review and then you spot the gaps and then you but but actually to I guess one of I'm sure there's other differences, but one of the big things that strikes me is the presence of questions of morality and of um, value that are there that that, that are, are not somehow just I don't know, bracketed off somewhere else, but they have to be in, in in each of those four stages. That's that's quite different, I think.
1: Yeah, but I do think like, and this is, I guess, again like the the complexity of like learning and trying to make things accessible. So. Um, I know that like Roy Baskar talked about these kind of things a lot and he brought in a lot of Eastern philosophy and mm. and those kind of things, but his work was very difficult to comprehend. Then mm. Ellen Norrie, like he kind of made it a bit easier, but it's still not very easy. Mm. And then if you make it even simpler, sometimes these things get removed for okay. like simplicity. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, yeah. But for me, it really helped... And I also really enjoy it to go into that kind of like depth and it helped me be reflective and, um, yeah. And actually also it helped me how to bring bring different people and different ways of knowing together, which is kind of like the third idea already.
0: Okay, wow. All right, well, that's a fantastic segue. So I, I, I wanted, I was just about to ask you about that statement, but you've, you've, you've sort of signposted that we're going to hear about it in a minute. So thank you. Um, so this third idea you've chosen is someone's thesis, which I like. I don't think we've yet had a thesis brought in. And it's by um, Catherine French and is called Bench to Bedside? Question mark, Boundary Spanning in Academic Health Science Centers. So um, how did you come across this thesis? Um, what does it say? And um, yeah, what, what did it do for you?
1: Yeah, so Catherine French was a, a person in my PhD department. And, um, she was at the time, like when I started, she was finishing up her PhD, but she was also, um, working on like training and development, like both supporting PhD students, but also training and development in the field of improvement and for healthcare professionals. Um, and, uh, yeah, I respect her a lot, actually, and her work as well. But specifically the, the boundary work, um, it was really helpful because me personally, I've always been sitting in different, in different fields and different um, professional fields and understandings. But also my center was in a place... That was a bit like at a boundary, okay. <laughs> I guess. So I was my PhD was part of the the Clark at the time, the um, collaborative for leadership in applied health research and care, a whole mouthful, and um, and we were like doing research but also supporting practice a little bit to understand how research can be implemented into practice, and. Catherine, in her thesis, so this is called the second translational gap, and Catherine, in her thesis, was exploring the first translational gap from basic basic medicine innovations to interventions. But it's a similar thing, where you work across professional boundaries. And in her thesis, she explored that type of work, what kind of different boundaries exist, boundaries between organizations, between professions, between... Um, epistemics, like different ways of knowing and um, she was exploring like the work that people did um, boundary spanners but also other types of work to bring um, it to close the gaps so mm. to say and bring people together and share knowledge from one island, translate it, transform it bring it to another island Uh, but I think through her works she also kind of celebrated that space and celebrated that type of work and I think for me personally it's something that I've always really enjoyed but also found a little bit um, difficult because Mm. you feel a little bit misunderstood everywhere right (laughs) and i also find it really important but i never know if the point that i was trying to make is coming across okay if it's not um and i think for me it was really helpful that she in her phd made all of this work and this experience so explicit Mm, mm. because i've always i've often said that i feel that i've I had to learn different languages. And that doesn't mean that I had to learn English when I came to the UK. But I speak very differently to like people doing physics or engineering. Yes. Then I speak to healthcare professionals. Then I speak to social scientists. And um, you kind of need to transform into the different fields. But I think it's really important for these people to work together. Yeah, I've always enjoyed... Team sports, team play. Yes. And you can really, well, systems thinking, you can create greater things if you work together. So I really enjoy working in that space. Mm. And um, I think the notion of like boundaries, boundary work, um, has helped me give it a name and kind of celebrate it and also tell other people this is what I'm doing.
0: Could you give us an example of some boundary work or boundary-spanning work that you've been involved in um, and I guess perhaps particularly after after reading this and, and sort of getting this concept in your mind, how, how do you, when you're going into that situation, what are some of the ways that you, um, you try and prepare yourself for, for what is, as you say, sometimes quite challenging and I guess disconcerting work where you're not sure if you're coming across um as you want to would you you be able to give us an example of that
1: um yeah I think actually it's always a a collaborative effort so I don't necessarily see it so much as like um a mission that I'm now setting (laughs) setting out to do but it's more by like trying and probing that I myself also realize like oh okay I think this actually didn't resonate so well like maybe change it so for example in my phd um i took a very it wasn't ethnography but like from the observer participant role i was a participant like and which is not super common like i think people would then more often rely on like action research Mm -hmm. Um, but i wasn't making any changes i was observing but participating as well also to get that experiential knowledge Um, And then when I would sometimes do a presentation or bring back findings, like, I would realize that it wasn't really what they expected. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I had it, for example, when I was asked to um, create a map, which was the foundation of a, a care pathway, so I was like, okay, I can I can map the service. That's fine. So I made a process map with like the different types of uh, roles there, and I was like, okay, here you go. Like this is the task, right? And they were like, oh wow, like this this was really not what we expected. And then they showed me what a care pathway usually looks like, and it looked nothing like okay. that. Okay, <laughs> So, um, but they actually thought it was really helpful mm. to see mm. this type of. Um, interdisciplinary process map so we went through it we talked about it we took lessons from it Um, so yeah it's not it wasn't like an an explicit effort yes but you learn throughout different different ways and I also had in presentations for example that like my supervisors would kind of like remind me to check that I didn't use any jargon if I was talking to healthcare professionals Mm, mm. And in other fields, like when I went, for example, to the critical realist conference, like it's a completely different story. I don't think that the, um, that my teams know that I've used um, critical realism or systems thinking, even though everything that I was doing or saying was drenched yeah. in that type of work.
0: Yes. But I guess it's just not necessary to use terms like that, that kind of somehow have a ring of scariness and of... Um... It's, it's more than just jargon, isn't it? There's just a sense in which someone can start feeling just unnerved that they're suddenly sort of part of a conversation that they no longer know how to continue or something like that. And actually, you can get the juice of what those those theories have given you in this context across without the theories themselves. And that's probably enough.
1: Yeah, and I think it's also theories are a way to like understand and describe the world. And people live in the world, so they already know it. They only don't know that specific word that I like to use, but I don't need to use that word because they are already living it. I can just point at what they are doing. Um, so I think that's often a lot more like helpful, especially if it's about change. facilitating change you want people to do things you don't want them to know a specific word however when you then write uh, grants for social science studies it's a different story Okay. yes yes (laughs) yeah then uh, this is actually something that I learned a lot in the uh, in the Apollo team um, because I have become very pragmatic and like you don't need to use the words, but actually it's also very important to have words to describe things because mm. it can be very emancipating. Mm. If you've always had this feeling, but you couldn't communicate it to people. And then if you have this word, um, suddenly it gives power. Yes. To, to have succinct concepts and words that you can refer to. And that's, that's one of the things that I've learned a lot like in our team people have so much knowledge about different theoretical concepts ways of studying and like it's it just takes time to learn but it's very very helpful (laughs) yes
0: and I guess it does give that authority sometimes to just show that this isn't just something you're doing for the first time which which you you might be sometimes but but a lot of time that, that there's even if even if you're talking to someone who's not in that research tradition, to just be able to, to to sort of signal there is a research tradition that's behind this and that I'm building on, that I'm that I'm in, that I guess can put other people at ease as well. To kind of be like, okay, right, I might not understand it, but there's a name there, there's a there's a kind of set of theory, you know, references and theory, and you know, yeah, just history to it that that might put others at ease in the same way. I guess that if you were doing genomic research, if you can just Cite a well-worked-out method of doing—I don't know—some sort of um, some sort of genomic method. Everyone relaxes a bit and says, "Okay, yeah, this is this is legit."
1: Yeah, exactly. Tried and tested.
0: <laughs> That's brilliant. Is there anything else you want to say about about this final idea?
1: Um, I don't think so. I think it just uh, for me just. It's a good way of summarizing my experience like throughout the the research journey. And actually it is an example of the power of social science and creating these theoretical concepts Mm. because for me it has been really helpful to give it a name and to be able to tell to people like this is what's happening here and this is why it's important.
0: That's brilliant. Thank you, Sophie. So I just want to finish by asking you a bit about what's next, because you will be moving on to the University of Birmingham in a couple of months' time. Um, Could you tell us a bit about uh, what you're going to be up to there and about anything you're particularly excited about exploring next?
1: Yeah, so I will be joining the the BRACE Institute. It's the Birmingham, Rand and Cambridge um, Rapid Evaluation Centre. And they are doing rapid evaluations in healthcare. And I'm actually, I'm actually really excited about it um, for different reasons. But one of the things is that in the, the healthcare improvement work that I've been doing, um, I've noticed that the teams there were always so busy just with delivering care in general. And then they have to do improvement on top of that because that's now kind of integrated into, into the philosophy. Like it's part of your work to improve your work. But then to also do an evaluation of your work it's just not really achievable, and um, I think researchers. It is part of our our role to make sense of what's happening, to measure, uh, to understand. But the way that research happens, it's quite often on a different type of time scale. That's not really, that's not always on time, and not always um, relevant for like immediate use. Mm. So they' are kind of trying to bridge that gap um, by being rigorous enough but also very pragmatic yes. and i 've always been pragmatic, so I find that really helpful. but what I also really enjoy is that this is an interdisciplinary team um, so i will be I will hopefully be able to continue learning about social science but also go back to some of my Data roots mm, because mm. I haven't looked at data like numbers. I mean, yes, <laughs> words are also data, of course. <laughs> um, but I haven't looked at numbers in ages, and I really enjoyed it. Yes. So it will be nice to like go back and um, learn from other people, like <laughs> what what the developments have been yes. in measuring and understanding. So I'm really excited that it brings that it brings all my history together. Yeah
0: that's fantastic well i'm really excited for you too and looking forward to hearing um what you get up to and thank you so much today for taking us through all three of these ideas which i certainly feel much more connected to now to understand a bit more about not just what they are but what they what they mean and and how they can um yeah i think you described it well just put put words to Sort of things that have been felt, but but not not identified. Um, so thank you so much, and thank you to all our listeners for listening in um, to this month's podcast. We will be back with you um, next month, and if you'd like to subscribe, you can do so um, on whatever podcast platform you're listening to this on. Um, and we'll see you again soon.